fun. Yeah, I, I've been working with this group of people that the, the name is Meteoro, that is organized by artists and run by artists. And uh, uh, Francis Ellis is giving the money, and then there's this photographer that is like the director, and then through contacts of the art world. Uh, happens that a museum lends us a, a place to, to give the classes and whatever. So I think that is nice because wow. it's an initiative that is it only comes from artists and there is no second interest because many of the agencies that are trying to help uh, the, the street uh, children's like churches or other groups from politics and whatever have second intentions yeah. with those, those projects. So I, I think that was very nice. We focus in a group of people that is called El Caballito y Sarco, that are two, two bands of, of kids that live in these plazas near downtown Mexico City. And, and the experience was great. Yes, I do believe that the, the, the possibility, for example, when you give a power tool to one of these kids and he's able to cut a chair and after that uh, is capable of sitting in this chair, his whole understanding of himself develops and change. Giving, I, I, the more I work in giving classes, I do believe that uh, teaching is more closer to self-esteem than really to uh, teach someone how to, to develop a certain skill or a technical whatever, you know. So yes, was really nice because, and they invite me because they've been working with the kids in many uh, uh, workshops that artists give and uh, 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 later they develop a system for fashion and they make uh, this runway where they sell almost all the clothes wow. and the, the, the kids get 30% of each sale for their own pockets and we don't tell or say anything um, what, what to do with that money, they could expend it on whatever they want but after this uh, they were capable to start renting rooms and then they faced the problem that they didn't have uh, not furniture at all so that's when, when they call it. And then I, I, I made this design that uh, just with a, a, a sheet of plywood you could build two chairs and a table, for example. That that is uh, 10 euros. So so it was really helpful. But the, the intention is that, uh, again, they not only learn how to do this furniture for themselves, but also to sell it and keep this income coming into their hands in order to support the rooms and the whatever. So, so uh, an effort to sort of a sustainable uh, part of education within the in, in helping directly, also yeah. giving them tools to work with in the future and yeah. continue to develop themselves. Yes, exactly. And and um, right now the, the, the teacher that is after me He's giving a class on, on really chic and slick uh, lamps and, and design, but everything is done with uh, with uh, leftovers. Really easy to find leftovers from the garbage. So so kids really know how, where where to find these materials and how to develop this new furniture that is a little bit uh, higher if you want in in, in in not in quality but in this fashionable thing, you know. So, so then the intention is to make a, yeah, a, a process that keep on, on, on developing until, until the kids want to, to keep it going, you know? Do you think that art in general is a tool or a tool of society to intervene in social and economic processes to 
to not only reflect on how the society is constituted and what the problems are, but also offer ways of solutions. Yes, yes, I do believe on that, but I think uh, as an artist it's really important to be really careful on what you're doing. But because I, I have seen many projects of artists that then take the situation of I am right and I know how to change the yeah. world mm -hmm. and if you listen to me, everything will be beautiful and wonderful. And it's like a discussion we had before, like no one wants to live in the utopia of the other, you know. Everybody has his own understanding of utopia. But I, I think art is a good medium because it, uh, art could deal really easily with different parts of society that maybe they don't touch each other. But art is capable of putting together, uh, I don't know, politics with gastronomy because we don't, uh, uh, different than science, we don't need to be rational and, and perfect in our systems. So we are capable of making links. For example, this thing I was talking about, Mole, it's a really political act somehow, because it only put together certain states of the country that are the producers of Mole, and their economies are really based on how they sell this product to the rest of the country. So maybe as an artist it's easy to, to make these links, even maybe other groups are not uh, recognizing the, the possibilities of exchange and so far. Yeah. Do you think that, that writing or photography uh, also has this link of uh, being able to connect different points of society, being it from economic points of view to identifying social issues. I mean, uh, obviously writing and photography has both had very strong relationships in the past of being tools for communication. Writers uh, bringing to the surface uh, difficult and dangerous situations in society from all uh, corners of the world and photography doing the same, especially in the development of these mediums in the beginning of the 19th century. Do you think uh, that specific functions still exist or is, is photography and uh, writing becoming more difficult uh, as media to, to identify issues and well, be a sword to fight with? <laughs> well, I don't think it's got any less important. I mean, writing and photography is the base of most media. Even if you're talking about TV, you've got a script, you've got images. Photography is obviously, uh, uh, in terms of impact, is a lot more powerful than writing and reaches a lot more people. Because given, I mean, in this country, there's a question of literacy, obviously. You write something, only so many, uh, so much percentage of the population is going to be able to read it. And of that percentage, very few are actually going to want to read it. Uh, whereas photography is always more of a kind of attractive and immediately understandable medium than writing. But I think. Um, but if you look at measures of uh, the information industry, we now get bombarded by 4,000 images and pieces of text per uh -huh. day. Yeah. And the question is can you still reach people with uh, writing? Because it's a general question in art. Mm -hmm. yeah. Is the question, can you still reach somebody with uh, an image, be it a sculpture, a sculpture or a text-based uh, work, or be it, be it something written, or mm -hmm. be it a movie? 
can you still reach somebody because everybody is completely overwhelmed by information already? I think that you can by you know by images. You definitely can because I think that if you express something through language, you're naturally constrained by you know just the way you were taught it and the way kind of just the structures of society. What you've been told is right to say, not right to say. And whereas if you're creating something, be it an image or sculpture or anything, you can kind of go beyond those boundaries that restrict you, even if they restrict you, you know, unconsciously, and you don't realize it. And I think that you're able to do that when you're creating, um, rather than, you know, speaking or um, the written word, uh, which I think can be constrained. Yeah, I think uh, the written word, in terms of what you say about the fact that we're bombarded with everything, you know, how do you actually capture someone, someone's attention even for a tiny second when there's so much going on? But uh, people, people who read uh, know what they read. They generally, you know, people read the same newspaper every day. People will go to the same websites. Mm -hmm. uh, people read some kinds of books. People would buy the catalogue or not of a, of a show. Um, uh, how much you can change that kind of <coughs> is uh, Hello. Welcome, Ilana Bultvinik. I just joined the conversation. We're at 35 minutes of our 75 minute um, podcast recording. So, um, I quickly introduce you as a visual artist um, living in Mexico most of your life and um, joining the conversation which today is about infrastructure, the consequences of the water and the fact that we're living on a 90 million, uh, in a 90 million inhabitants society on top of the lake and which zones of conflict and, and urgency that's uh, creating. Um, so jump in whenever you want at any point. Okay. Uh, we're just talking about um, how different ways of artistic expression ranging from making furniture with children, we're talking about how to reach and how to make cross boundaries through society uh, using photography as a tool to connect, using writing as a tool to connect, and um, I think it's it's interesting to think about um, how in a in a Mexican society, which is very widespread and very diverse, which tools we can use within the platform of urban investigation to to make things visible. Because uh, Lorena Wolfer in the last session was putting uh, um, an emphasis on information, how to inform people about certain situations. Because if the water, uh, if there is a problem with the water, which is still a question mark, because mm -hmm. Ortiz uh, informed us in the last session that there's still as much water available as there was. It's just badly managed. Mm -hmm. And so if that's the point of information, that's the piece of information, how do you communicate that to the people it concerns and how do you do it in a way that it formulates some kind of um, solution for the future or some kind of direction of 
of improving things instead of just making a, a purely political statement that something is wrong. So I'm very interested in, in which kind of tools and how do we use them in this specific situation in Mexico City? How can we use which tools to make things uh, visible? How do we get information on the table and make it available? Well, I want to go back uh, to her first. Uh, I've been noticing that every day and more and more often uh, from commerce to publicity and especially the, some newspapers mm. are using these misspelled words mm. that, and they're becoming like really strong on me mexicanismos on, on, oh, on the way that Mexicans no, some English words it's, uh, it's like invasion but uh, nevertheless there's uh, really specific uh, ways of pronunciation that Mexicans have for things mm. and now the people is starting to write right. these words yeah. in the way that people spell them yeah. you know but you mean foreign words right Rather no, than no, 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 no 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 oh, no the yeah. Spaniard <coughs> Spaniard words uh, yeah. yeah but they, they are starting to write them in a really local way so that is really funny because mass media example? is starting uh, gratis that is for free they are trying to say ah. gratis but uh, uh, it, it making like I'm making a joke that Mexico City will have like free internet but the, in the newspaper was uh, written like gratis or I don't know casa with K instead of C and and, and Queca, that is quesadilla, uh -huh. no? the, the short names that people give to things are starting to be written in books and, and, and whatever. So that is really funny because it's a phenomenon that in the past two years is starting to be like really, really strong. You I know? think that shows a great like vitality of language though, that you can, um, I mean obviously there'll be a lot of purists who are like, yeah. you know, go crazy about it. But, um, that, like in the UK, for example, that you know that happens in the States even worse. Right. You know, you it's to attract people's attention, to um, you know, it's a it's a marketing tool, yeah, or or an advertising, right, or something like that. And for example, a gratis, I guess that's supposed to sound Chinese, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's like, haha, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which obviously works. But I think it's a good thing. Uh, yeah. No, I do believe it's a good yeah, thing. Yeah, it's, I, it's part thing. of the evolution of language right. itself. Yeah, but it's also to show if you write an SMS. I write text language as a whole. You, you say K, you say K, K E, and right. you know, things like this, which people, somebody uses it, and then you pick it, and then it starts moving, and right. then people just accept it. But then the the K thing in Spanish, I think, is an interesting because it has a totally different significance. Well, I remember when I used to live in Madrid. Uh, when people use K in like the language, they write everything with a K instead yeah. of a Q U. Yeah. It's a kind of underground. I don't know if you also. Uh, sí, kind es of una fast. manera más moderna de hablar, no, más rápida. Pero tiene tiene una actitud un poco informal. Sí, eh, pero anti-establecimiento. Anti, no, 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 rebelde. El idioma, ajá, de rebelde. los chavos. Bien. Eh, de hecho, quería intervenir sobre este punto porque. Eh, lo estáis comentando como, bueno, puede ser una nueva evolución del idioma, de la manera de comunicarse, ahora todo se hace más rápido o, bueno, pero hay una pequeña contradicción, porque qué es evolución y qué es tal vez deterioro o, o destrucción. ¿Por qué? Porque en un debate similar, eh, recientemente, pues claro, realmente eh, en el caso de México, 
estaba habiendo en conversaciones con gente de una fundación o algo así que se encargaba de rescatar o de conservar los dialectos eh, mexicanos, que son cincuenta y pico, sesenta y pico, bueno, pues sí. la gente está trabajando por mantener algunas cosas, sí. no, gente que estudia las lenguas muertas, entonces tampoco no es, eh, no es el objetivo no es dictar cuál es la verdadera manera de comunicarse o esto es correcto o esto no, sí. porque muchísimas palabras que están eh, aprobadas por la Real Academia de la Lengua mm. eran usos o eran desviaciones o derivaciones que finalmente se, se aceptaron y eran por el uso de la gente, claro, no su sí. costumbre, ¿no? Claro. Y bueno, creo que es, debe ser bastante complicado ser juez ¿no? y dictaminar claro. cuál vale y cuál no. Y además tener un poco de tiempo después, o sea, retro... Que, sí, ¿cuánto, ¿cuánto tiempo puede durar? De hecho, un fenómeno eh, muy común en la lengua es que cuando una expresión, una palabra entra con mucha fuerza, mm. lo que entra con mucha fuerza tiene eh, tendencia a desaparecer rápido también. Mm. En cambio, lo que entra se conoce, pero está un tiempo, eh, es lo que perdura. Mm. Sí, sobre todo lo que eh, me llamaba la atención era una pregunta, fue como el más media que bajó al nivel de la calle a recuperar este lenguaje, mm. o fue tan fuerte el nivel del lenguaje underground o, o de nivel de, de calle mm. que fue necesario incorporarlo al, al, al más medio ¿no? o sea, ¿qué poder? Por, hay, hay como poderes sucediendo en la calle y México es un, un sitio donde se mueve como mucha energía y la gente eh, es, tiene mucho más poder del que ella está consciente entonces hay una serie de códigos tácitos que operan en toda la Ciudad de México porque es un lugar de absoluta anomia. Esta ausencia de ley en la Ciudad de México ha hecho que todos, ha, todos sabemos cómo manejar en la Ciudad de México. Y yo sé cómo me le puedo cerrar a alguien sin que alguien... Este, ¿No? Pero hay, una, hay muchos códigos que son las, las reglas que nosotros hemos construido a pesar de que nadie las podríamos escribir. ¿no? Y yo creo que ese es uno de los fenómenos más interesantes de la Ciudad de México. Entonces creo que toda esa energía está empezando a permear a las estructuras que, que, que sostienen a la ciudad. We, we are not in, in, empowered in terms of politics or by saying, but just by agreeing with others, even we don't agree, but we know until, until how far I could go with someone in the street. You know? I know the code. In, in Mexico City. And I know the code that changes depending on which neighbor, at what hour, in which situation I am. And, and all of us, we know those codes, you know? And we, we behave on this organization that we as inhabitants of the city, we have created. And politicians talk and say and whatever. Pertenezcas tú. Al principio explicábamos que había diferentes eh, divisiones, uh -huh. ¿no? De cultural, social y muy marcado en el presente el económico. Claro. Pero todos somos personas, todos tenemos la misma fuerza, energía o capacidades, pero en diferentes eh, líneas. Sí, y no, no todos conocemos la línea y la fuerza de los, de los demás y no todos lo quieren reconocer. Claro, pero hay, hay espacios de convivencia muy claros como el tráfico. Sí, exacto. Ricos y pobres, Azcapotzalco y San Ángel, este, eh, campesinos, indígenas, 
Como este, sistema. El del semáforo y, 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 el, y Slim, todos usan la calle para llegar de un lugar a otro, ¿no? Y más en esta ciudad que no es una ciudad de habitación. No es sí, una pero ciudad todo que... Mundo la vive diferente. Sí, obviamente. Pero es un código de sobrevivencia. Pero eso, lo que bueno es que hay muchas líneas, no son horizontales y son verticales, claro. pero son códigos que cambian. O sea, no es un México el que tiene un código común, claro. son muchos Méxicos con muchos códigos, porque esta pero ciudad, si algo es, son muchos Pero ciudades. están como encimados. Bueno, son sistemas de convivencia. Mm. Y otro día, Ilana y yo estuvimos hablando de un otro sistema que puede ser un código también, que es basura. Porque que la basura que me interesa bastante porque cuando investigas la basura en todos los diferentes sistemas sociales, socioeconómicos hay diferentes uh, uh, códigos de, de conducirte con tu basura, con basura y, y todo. Por ejemplo, en, en Chimahuacán en Chimahuacán lo, uh, lo usan uh, o llegan a basura dos veces porque toda basura está uh, uh, sorteado y revendido una vez a claro, domingo claro. Uh, a un super gran claro. mercado y, y eso, bueno, es un código también. Pero me interesa mucho uh, hablar un poco más de estos sistemas de códigos que puede ser sistemas de diferencias o sistemas de sí, reconocimiento. Sí, reconocimiento o igualdades. ¿Cómo lo ves tú? Bueno, sí, por ejemplo, una gran diferencia que hay entre el uso de la basura en México y en Holanda, que sería algo interesante como punto de partida de comparación, es que aquí no hay basura. Y así... No, basura o sea, significa ¿cómo? sin uso. Sí, exactamente, pues, ¿no? Algo que se queda finalmente. Que se muere, uso. o sea, digamos que todos los domingos en Ámsterdam te puedes ir de compras a la calle porque hay camas, sofás, eh, televisiones, hasta hay códigos para si el aparato eléctrico funciona o no funciona, pues si está cortado el cable o no. En cambio, aquí es, estrictamente hablando, la, la basura siempre es se tendría que hablar más en términos de desechos que de basura, porque casi toda la basura es reutilizada por, digamos, por, por otros, ¿no? es como una, también una cadena perpetua que va pasando de unos a otros, a otros, a otros, ¿no? en, en su afán por seguir existiendo, no hay como en esta ciudad una necesidad de, de existir, y eso incluye la basura de alguna manera. Sí. El reciclado fue inventado en México. Sí. Y hay muchas cosas, como muebles y ropas y muchas cosas hechas de reciclaje, pero no como trendy, que, que, que nos sí. vemos más en Europa. También trendy. Las tiendas de ropa usada que no existen aquí. La idea es que si te pones ropa usada por alguien más aquí, o sea, solo los pobres hacen eso, porque Exacto. ¿para qué? Si lo puedes comprar. Exacto. Entonces aquí es en el mercado, además. Un necesidad. Si no vas a... Sí, pero... O sea, lo que voy es que también hay... Eh, o sea, también esa necesidad de no usar cosas usadas es porque, bueno, por un lado, las cosas se van pasando de generación en generación hasta que se destruyen, pero también hay esta idea de que te puedes comprar algo nuevo muy, muy barato, ah, pues, ¿no? O sea, 
Inclusive hay, hay algunos puestos de ropa usada de 50 pesos y demás, y hay otros puestos de ropa nueva de 50 pesos uh -huh. también, ¿no? Uh -huh. Entonces... Aunque eso es muy utilizado eh, en, en, en la onda de moda, o sea, hay muchísima gente que, que compra en, en tiendas vintage, que sí, sí hay bastantes tiendas vintage en México, y bueno, re, reutilizan o compran y la modifican, ¿no? Para sí, es más que el vintage, es que quieres hacer el, por modo, por sí, años 70, 80, por modelos sí, que ya no se encuentran. Igual que compran en un mercado, ¿sabes? Si es ropa usada. Sí, pero lo compran usada y lo convierten en vintage. No, también es, no entiendo, o sea, hay... No como sustituto de... Y no como aquí, pero hay millones yeah. de garbage. No, pero no como el mismo uso que tuvo en su origen. No, pero hay lugares donde se vende ropa usada por un peso el kilo. Pero por necesidad, claro. eso es por necesidad. No, y es impresionante. Por sobrevivir, pues, no, no. pero es sí, lo menos, es lo menos. Este, dos o tres personas que Depende sí van, como dices, y ¿cómo? se aprovechan mucho, ¿no? Y está increíble. Pero, por ejemplo, si quieres vender ropa vintage aquí, lo traes de Los Ángeles. O sea... La, la gente que se dedica a eso, a, a vender cosas viejas pero bien, ni, ni lo compran aquí, porque todo aquí... O sea, sí luego encuentras cosas padres, pero como mucho se queda dentro de la cadena de, de reuso, sin, sin emergir a... No sé, pero eso es ah, lo que te decías tú, son códigos distintos en distintas... en los distintos Méxicos que hay dentro de un México. O sea, el, lo que puede significar para mí comprar ropa usada puede significar otra cosa 